Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss the use of mobile or smartphone health or medical applications, that is, who uses them, what uh, do they do, and to what effect. With me to discuss the topic is the Bipartisan Policy Center's Ms. Janet Marsha Broda. Welcome, Janet. Thank you for your time. Thank you, David. It's a great pleasure to join you today to talk about a very timely topic. Great. Thank you. Let me provide some background. Industry estimates that by 2015, 500 million smartphone users worldwide will be using mobile health care applications. It's further estimated that by 2018, more than half of the 3.4 billion smartphone and tablet users will have downloaded at least one medical or health care application. The mobile applications market is expected to grow from 500 million in 2010 to 8 billion in 2018. Among numerous other functions, these mobile uh, applications can estimate blood pressure via a smartphone's camera. An application using a sensor attached to an an inhaler can track um, and communicate the location and time of a patient's steroid use. And there are applications that can help people manage their insulin-dependent diabetes. While these software applications offer the potential to transform our healthcare, a recent Institute for Healthcare Informatics report found that there was no basis of evidence mobile health applications deliver clinical value in health outcomes or support or sustain behavior change. Again, with me again to discuss mobile health applications, sometimes termed digital therapeutics, and their promise is Ms. Janet Marchabroda. Janet's bio is, of course, posted on the website. So with all that, Janet, Let me begin by asking you the obvious question. Since there are tens of thousands of mobile medical or health applications, it would be useful if we could try to categorize. Broadly, these applications attempt to do what? So a few things. If you look at the market today and what people are using, health apps typically fall into four categories. And so the first is what I know that probably a lot of our listeners are accustomed perhaps to using, and and the numbers are growing, and that's to track things that are related to health and wellness. Your weight, um, what you're eating, how much you're exercising, and increasingly in the last couple of years, how well you're sleeping, how long. So that's the first category. The second, and you're seeing this, and this will become more and more important because 84% 84% of our healthcare costs are really due to those with chronic conditions, are apps that help you monitor when you're taking your medication, if you take your medication. So medication management, maybe blood pressure tracking, um, other things that are important to managing your chronic conditions. The third, and we're seeing an uptick here, is apps that help you navigate your experiences with the healthcare system. So what does that mean? Um, Increasingly, you're seeing health plans like Aetna or United or others um, that will enable you to look up, uh, you know, we're used to the provider directory in the booklet, right? You're able to look up and see your alternatives and the relative quality and increasingly cost of different providers. So uh, transparency in the system. Um, We're also seeing things like requesting renewal of your prescriptions and the like uh, through your app. And then the fourth category um, is around self-diagnosis. And and I think this is 
the one as we're looking at regulation um, that is going to be more likely to fall under medical device regulation. These are apps that you use them and, and to diagnose uh, whether you have an illness, uh, really uh, beginning to move into the medical practice arena. So those are the four primary types of consumer apps. And if we talk further, you know, increasingly clinicians are using them too. Maybe spend a couple of minutes. Yeah, let me get to that. But before I do, let me ask you, there are other categories uh, or other motivations by others. So employers, insurance plans, and providers, of course, have their inherent interests. But since you mentioned providers, let me ask you to address what they're doing with these. Well, it's a very exciting time. Um, clinicians and even hospital systems to date have been slow to adopt consumer-facing applications. Um, there are a whole host, actually the Bipartisan Policy Center has done a lot of research in this area, uh, releasing a report last December. Um, there are a number of reasons why we're not seeing providers in the past adopting some of these tools. Worries about liability, um, not being aware that these products are available, and frankly, in the past, there haven't been too many of these tools. But recently, and in particular, um, which was stimulated by high tech and uh, the meaningful use incentives, we're seeing that to get your financial incentive, um, beginning in stage two this year, actually, um, providers need to enable patients to view, download, and even transmit their electronic health record information um, from the provider's office. And that's really important and brings with it um, all sorts of exciting um, possibilities. The other thing is this notion of emailing, secure email between clinicians and their patients. Haven't seen much uptick adoption to date, but again, some of these um, CMS, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, EHR incentives will require a certain percentage of interactions uh, through email between clinicians and their patients. So in summary, to answer your question, um, haven't seen much of it to date, but I think that's about to change, which is very exciting for patients. So let me just to cover the ground, what would be the employer and or the insurance plan? In many cases, the employer is the insurer. What are their motivations? Uh, I'm glad you raised that. Actually, we're doing a lot of work um, with employers. We launched a CEO council on health and innovation. number of employers, primarily outside of healthcare, that are looking at new innovations to um, improve health and wellness of their employees and their families and also reduce cost and improve quality and care. Now, if you were to look out across the landscape in the United States, you'd see uh, that about half of U.S. employers with 50 or more employees, and this is a group that employs about three-quarters of our nation's uh, workforce, currently offer something called workplace wellness programs. And these have been around for a long time. You know, it's a combination of primary prevention, uh, keeping people well, and then also helping um, employees with chronic conditions better manage those conditions. So lots of uh, adoption of these workplace wellness programs. But if you look at the data, um, and when we've talked to employers, 
one of the most common challenges associated with these programs is the difficulty of actually getting employees engaged in the program. Um, let me share with you some of the statistics. 77% uh, of employers with wellness programs cite engagement of employees as, as the primary challenge, the primary barrier. It's hard to get uptake. And um, what's exciting is a number of employers and their health plans, you know, in partnership with their health plans, are now meeting people where they are. Um, whether it's the use of apps or online tools or mobile health tools to actually engage them um, in these health and wellness activities. Because when you think about it, most of us handle the rest of our lives, whether it's booking a trip. Paying our bills. Uh, paying our bills, that's right. Or, or just, you know, everyday um, aspects of life are handled with with. Uh, technology, but but much less so in healthcare. But I see that beginning to change. Okay, let me ask you though the the bottom line to all this. And I'm realizing the industry still in is is in its infancy. What research is there showing um, effectiveness? I did note the uh, healthcare informatics report that was out a month ago. But what's your understanding of research showing effectiveness in the use of these applications? Well, I think, um, I think you're right. There isn't a ton of data out there for a couple of reasons. I think that uh, we're fairly early in the process. Um, but before I answer that question, let me take a step back. And, and this is something that we spent a lot of time on. Um, over the years, if you just think about engaging people, engaging patients in general, directly, engaging them in their care. Uh, not so much of that happening in our country, whether using electronic mm -hmm. tools or not, but just in the last couple of years, we've seen more and more research that indicates that better engagement, activation of patients in their care actually reduces healthcare costs, improves outcomes, and of course improves the patient experience of care. Um, we think the use of these tools, the mobile tools that we're talking about, is simply um, an extension of that engagement process and so think that uh, we should see uh, good come out of it. Uh, there have been some studies, not um, hundreds of them. I think Geisinger, uh, Kaiser Permanente, and others have shown that engagement, whether it's using secure email or, um, or the use of record, you know, engaging patients using electronic tools actually does save money, improve outcomes, and improve uh, the patient experience of care. But we've got a lot more work to do. And that's something that we've put out there. You know, now that these are taking hold, and this is actually something that the employers are really interested in, um, sometimes we don't always do um, the study you know, in a scientific way, in a way that it can be published. And I think we need to do more of that. I think we need to do more sharing of best practices around what works uh, to move this forward because I don't, I don't think we're going back. Uh, we're going to continue to move forward in this regard. Let me then go to uh, this issue of potential downsides. Um, I did read recently there was a University of Pittsburgh study that found a dermatology diagnostic application 
that takes a picture of a mole and transmits it to a diagnostic site found that 30 to 60% of these uh, transmitted photos um, uh, uh, incorrectly uh, classified uh, these as benign. So there is obviously uh, the potential downside. Uh, so maybe more generally even, um, will these applications, is there a concern that these applications will replace or become substitutes for more professional or expert care? And how is that being addressed? Hmm. Well, you raise a good point around uh, making, assuring the safety of these products. And that's really important. And, and there has been a lot of activity on the policy front around oversight. So let's, let's then go to the FDA guidelines. So in September, the FDA released its final guidelines addressing mobile medical applications. Uh, what generally is your, now realizing they're just out, and again, the industry being in its, in its infancy, what's generally your impression as it relates to these guidelines? Or what effect do you think they'll have? I think that the guidelines were generally well received by all stakeholders across the country. Um, there has been a lot going on in this area and it's difficult to keep up. What, what, the, what the guidance did is it provided much needed clarity to the industry around what would fall into the regulated And what category, would not, right, yes. And what would not. And that was really important, particularly... So an important in, first step, at least, yes. In the mobile medical application space. And it was pretty specific um, in that arena around mobile medical apps. That said, uh, it didn't touch on uh, health information technology so much. And let me ask you why that seems to be certainly a related issue. Why, why did that not occur? So I'll tell you, we were, we were really pleased, David, that, that it didn't touch on that area. And this is why. Um, about a year ago, a year and a half ago, in July 2012, um, FDASIA, a law, uh, was passed that called for, it, it recognized that our environment is changing, right? We've got lots of innovations, information technology is moving into the doctor's office and in, into the homes, you know, mm. to help manage health and health care. And it called for the development of a regulatory framework or an oversight framework for health information technology. And actually, in the next couple of months here, it, uh, it called for the Department of Health and Human Services Secretary, working with the FDA, working with the FCC and the Office of the National Coordinator for Health IT to develop a risk-based regulatory framework for health information technology. I know that's underway. They launched a FACA or Federal Advisory Committee to inform that. Um, there's a big public comment period. Um, and that will be coming out here in January. And so we felt it was very important that the medical app guidance sort of leave that to the side um, while all of this uh, policy debate was going on around how to regulate health IT. And I've been pretty involved in that space. And what's your expectation then for this January release? <coughs> well, we... Um, Actually, if I could, the Bipartisan Policy sure, Center <laughs> um, engaged 
more than 100 consumer groups and medical societies, clinicians, hospitals, technology companies, patient safety organizations to think through what would a regulatory framework for health IT look like um, and laid out a set of principles and policies and key elements of that framework um, and, and found that health IT is it's different from a medical device actually. It, it's not like you can look at it before it hits the market and put a checkbox, it's safe or it's not mm -hmm. safe. Um, or even do post-market surveillance and, and, you know, oversee it as you would a medical device. It actually changes hundreds of times, maybe every week. Um, users implement it differently. Uh, they make changes along the way. It's a growing living thing, this IT mm -hmm. thing that's moving into the offices of clinicians and hospitals. And the safety... It, it relies just as much on how it was de developed as it is on how it's used and implemented. And it really, assuring safety uh, is, requires shared responsibility among developers and users, um, implementers and the like. And so we've got a whole set of, of uh, principles and recommendations of how you get clinicians and developers and hospitals um, working together to assure safety, to monitor it, to learn, you know, a learning environment for all of that um, as we move forward. So to answer your question directly, we hope in January when this comes out from the secretary that uh, the framework that they come up with actually um, reflects shared responsibility, covers the whole life cycle of health IT, um, encourages learning in folks working together, has reporting is a key component of it, not just checking before it moves out the door, but reporting instances just as we do with our patient safety organizations. And we can actually help everyone move forward to improve safety um, in a way that doesn't stifle innovation. Um, so. Let me, let me ask one specific question. The, the healthcare industry um, is repeatedly criticized, appropriately so, on this issue of transparency, meaning that the industry is not transparent, uh, whether that relates to cost and price, or whether that relates to, um, you know, evidence for uh, procedures uh, and their outcomes. Uh, in this larger subject of health information technology, to your, to what extent do you think this will actually address or improve this issue or problem? Uh, related to transparency. I'm glad you raised that issue. And um, actually, next week, we're going to be releasing a report on the role of, quote, big data in healthcare. And uh, I know that's probably an overused term. What is big data? But going back to what we were talking about before, we're at a unique period in time where you've got $30 billion dollars of investment in clinical systems. So we're going from a paper system to a digitized system, clinicians and hospitals across the country, and the adoption rates are soaring. It's like night and day over mm -hmm. the last uh, three or four years. So you've got that trend. You, in parallel, you've got people, all of us as individuals, increasingly using social media, mobile health tools, electronic tools to navigate our health care. 
Um, for a long time, we've already had claims and payment cost information already in digital form. And I think we've got the real opportunity, the convergence of focus on cost, you know, addressing the 18% of GDP that is spent on healthcare in our country, and leveraging data in an appropriate way uh, to actually bring transparency into the hands of the consumer. Imagine that. And uh, the other trend here is, okay, you've got the digitized data coming into play, pressure on cost. Um, in the old days, you know, we, with our healthcare, you know, we, we paid the same copay no matter what. Uh, it didn't really impact us as individuals um, with our employers, but that's changing too. You know, you're seeing uh, an increasing trend of employers going to consumer-directed health plans. You're seeing deductibles go up. You're seeing each of us as individuals uh, taking more responsibility for a larger component of the healthcare spend. So we're gonna become more consumers in oriented, the process, right. consumer oriented. And so I think these three trends are gonna converge and I think there will be a, a lot more pressure on transparency, um, which I think will be a good thing. Well, sadly we're at our time battery, but just let me ask you, your big data report, does it have a title or it just will be released uh, next week? Um, our title, I think it's, um, and we're just going to the editor right now, um, is Transforming Healthcare, the Role of Big Data. Um, we brought together about 35 experts uh, and explored the promise, the challenges, and the key policy uh, issues that needed to be addressed to bring big data into improving health and healthcare. Okay, sorry to say, Janet, we're at our time boundary, so I appreciate your time today. Thank you so much, and let's hope this works out all for the best. Thank you.